You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. I'm Joe Malone. This is the What Do You Do podcast. And our uh, guest today is Anthony <coughs> DeJern. And Anthony, what do you do? Um, I shoot people, frame them, and then they pay me to do it. No, I'm a photographer. Yeah, a photographer. <laughs> a photographer. And um, we, we just got to, well, you shot some photos for the radio station. Yes. And I did your Christmas card. Yeah, the Christmas card, which turned out Standing great. Standing out there in the cold. In our, t- in our T-shirts and our polos. Yep. But it, it worked. It worked. Yeah, it worked good. Um, and um, I just had a chance to kind of like actually meet you for the first time today. Yeah. Besides besides that. And you're, you're an interesting guy with an interesting yeah. job, interesting kind of background as well. Um, let's, let's start with how you got into photography. Okay. Um, well, I actually kind of got into it when I was about 13. Uh, my grandfather was really into it. And so, um, he was a local business owner here in Mason city, a long, long time gone, but, um, and, uh, he was really fascinated with like the mechanics of a camera. And so he would, he'd buy cameras just to see how they worked and see what he could do to manipulate them in certain ways. And that got me kind of stoked on it, and, and you know, what are you doing? Uh, how's, how do you make to do that? And so he would teach me little things about camera. And so, like, you know, I, I did a few things I, for, like, yearbook um, and uh, stuff like that. You know, I, I never said, oh, this is it. Um, I had friends, in the, especially once I moved up here to Clear Lake from Rhinebeck, mm-hmm. which is down by Waterloo. Um, I had a group of friends who were, like, very artistic and very artistic. They're very creative. A couple of friends from Norris Springs, friends from Mason, and friends from Clear Lake. And so we would go out and we would just do these ridiculous things with cameras and taking just goofy photos of us. We would like come up with a scenario in our head and we'd set it up and shoot it. But then my friend Brent, uh, who was from Norris Springs uh, and subsequently is now a filmmaker in Atlanta, um, he would go into the dark room and just cut negatives and do all these and make these crazy photos out of what we'd done and it would look like it was really well done and so i learned a lot from him too and so we just had fun with it and you know i'm also a musician so i focused on post high school i focused on my music for quite a while talk to me about that what what instrument do you play um well with my father being the former band director at clear lake high i can play all brass instruments keyboards percussion but when it comes to being in bands uh and i tend to lean more towards the punk and alternative side um i'm a bass player and I, and I sing backups and I compose as well. So, and what what was the first band name you had? Oh, the very first band name was Elvis at Three, which makes absolutely no sense. But there was three of us. We none of us really particularly liked Elvis. <laughs> it did you just do any cool. Elvis? Was that? But did you do any Elvis? Like a punk no, version no, of Love no. Me Tender? No, or? we should have. But no, it was <laughs> Love it, Me Tender. It, it, That'd be true. <laughs> it was it was a hardcore punk band. I mean, it was. Yeah, it was it was a lot of screaming and a, a lot of noise. And was that something that was happening here in North Iowa that you were in this band, or where where did this band here in, in here in North Iowa? Um, it was more like yeah, your friends are having a party. Everyone kind of bring their instruments over, and we'll just 
we'll play songs by the cult or we'll play whatever we could play at that point, ACDC, which is always very easy. Um, but this actually happened while I was living in the UK. Um, I had joined the Air Force, and these were two other Air Force members that I had become friends with. So you formed a punk band over in England. While I was in the military. <laughs> does it get any more punk rock than that? Um, yeah. I, it I, does? I, oh, okay. No, no. I, I mean, I'm kind of agreeing with you. Yeah, it really doesn't because the, the funny part about it, and I, and I say this to my friends sometimes, when they don't know that I've been in the military, here I was coming out of high school, an anti-authority, skateboarding. Punk rock guy. Punk, yeah, punk rock guy. And um, despite growing up in a household where music was very formative, my dad was very big into like bebop jazz. He loved big band and swing, and he was a huge Brian Wilson fan. So I grew up with that. And so maybe like you know, getting into the damned and the Sex Pistols and the Clash was kind of like my, screw you, dad, I'm going to listen to my stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, but but while all the while holding on to those sensibilities and that education that I got. But um yeah, the the military made me a police officer. <laughs> Not that I was ever in trouble with the police to begin with, but um this the whole anti-authority type. Here I am a, a skateboarding anti-authority type. They make me a cop. And then the first thing I do when I get to the UK is I meet other likewise individuals like myself who really shouldn't have been in the military because of our mindsets. Um um, yeah, obviously we're patriotic to a point, but then mm-hmm. we kind of saw through the veneer of it as well. Um, and we form a punk band. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like that. And then, So do you buy instruments in England? Did you have instruments from home shipped um, to you? I, I actually bought all my instruments over there. The stuff that I had here I had sold before I had gone over. Before you shipped yeah. overseas. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And, and how, how do you be punk rock with, with a buzz cut? Is that even possible? Well, I mean, not that I subscribe to that point of view ever. Um, I mean, there's the whole skinhead movement. Or like your hardcore but, but, guys, yes. But, yeah. you know, when you, when you look at punk rock and everyone sees, like, the guy with the big mohawk and the spikes. <laughs> yeah, and, that's, that's you the, know what, the thought. What I learned, and this was basically an American thing, the fashion of punk was a very British thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you were going over there. Yeah, you saw the guys with the green hair and, and all that stuff. Punk in the U.S. was more of a mindset. And it was more of a DIY, do it yourself. No one's going to save you. No one's going to help you. You got to find your own way and make it happen. You've got to hand out the flyers. You have to put up the posters. You You have have to create the fanzines. You have to do everything that gets you out there. You have to do in yours because no record company is going to want you. They can't make money with you. You're dropping four letter words every fifth, you know, lyric, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So it it was the punk ethos. And I still carry it to this day is do things for yourself. Don't rely on anyone else. Obviously, there's times you need help, but you got to make you. And that's why, you know, I I guess I'm kind of always, even though I spent, you know, over a decade in the corporate world, I always reverted back to my artistic and creative side because that's really, in essence, who I am. So the military brings you to the UK. UK, yeah. At the UK, you form your first band, and then you have more bands after that, and the music starts to bring you around the world, doesn't it? Yes, but much later. Okay. Um, so while I'm in the Air Force, I'm at RAF Bentwaters Woodbridge. It's right before the first Gulf War. The Berlin Wall comes down. So literally overnight, the Soviet threat is gone. And so George Bush Sr. came over and he said, hey, we need 145,000 of you to get out and get out now. 
I'll go. Boom. I'm, <laughs> I was, my, and, and I say this jokingly because I really admire my time in the military, and I have so many friends that I met at that time and are still in my life today, and they're very important to me. But I was kind of over the dog and pony show. And when I say that, I was, I was over the dog and pony show. Here I am, a military police officer, in a country with some of the strictest gun laws on the planet in the U.K. Yet here I am, armed to the teeth, depending on what post I'm manning. Yeah. You know, I either have a Beretta 9mm with 60 rounds of ammunition strapped to me, or I have a M16 with 240 rounds. And then if I get assigned the grenade launcher, I have that plus 40 high explosive grenade strapped to me as well. Or if I'm in another area, I'm, I'm on an M60 machine gun with 600 rounds on me, and there's no one coming over that fence. It's more of a threat and a deterrent. You, you, you see that right away. And so I was kind of over that. You know, I love the job. I love the people that I served with. I love the bases that I served at. They were tremendous. They were so much fun. But I was over the, just the BS of it. Quick aside, are you a better shot with the gun or with the camera? It's a push. It's a push? <laughs> I, 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 the, the look you in know, your eye when you said that made me not want to question anything you no, ever no, no, said. No, 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 um, no. Um, I'm going to say this. When it comes to politics, I'm very independent. I both, I'm an issues guy. Tell me what the issue is, and I'll tell you what my stance is on it. Because I go way to the left on things, I go way to the right on things. But when it comes to my constitutional rights, I'm very much a constitutionalist. And I am a Second Amendment advocate. I'm not a member of the NRA. I don't agree with the way that they are doing things. And I will probably never be a member of the NRA. I appreciate the things they've done in the past, but where they've gone to now, that's foreign to me. Um, but yeah, I'm a licensed, concealed, and carry member. And yeah, so when you say, who, where am I a better shot? It's a push because I'm, I'm, I keep myself proficient. Um, in both aspects in both of shooting. Aspects. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Now, but I'll tell you which one's more fun. <laughs> would that well, be, it depends would that on be my mindset gun? for the day. Do I yeah. want to blow things up? Or do, yeah. But no, the camera's way more fun. Now, I don't lose my hearing due to it. Uh, again, uh, uh, Anthony, you had mentioned um, before we started the uh, What Do You Do podcast that you were in the Washington area, Seattle area, yeah, as, as grunge was, was, kind of was taken taken off. So going yeah. from a punk background, did you find it easy to fit into that movement well, starting? Well, or did you fight against it because... Well, if you if you really dig into grunge, and I hope I don't lose people with naming bands here. That's all if, right. If you really go into grunge, it was born in punk. Mm -hmm. When you hear like what Nirvana was coming up with, and like Tad and the Melvins, man, that's straight out of Husker Du, The Descendants, Seven Seconds... They just made it more a little bit more commercially viable. Poppy. A little bit more poppy. Yeah. Um, and, and I know for some punk people, that threw them off of that. Yeah. Like, what, you're stealing our stuff yeah. and not oh, doing it the yeah. way that we always did. That's why yeah. I asked, were you a fan of this change in music? I was a huge fan of it. Okay. Number one, I was in a band when all that was happening. And, and you I, were playing and, grunge? And, and I, uh, we weren't playing grunge. How can I describe the band I was in in the UK? I was in a band called The Crane Flies. And... We were an all originals band. We didn't. We, we the only covers we did were during soundcheck, and we would cover bands that we admired. Um, but no, it was it was welcome. It was finally we were being heard. Finally, we were being listened to. The people who who had five years before we get beaten up in high school for listening to that stuff. Or oh, what's this? This is stupid. Mm -hmm. You know, 
uh, by the jocks. And all of a sudden, the jocks are listening to what you've been listening to for years, which was kind of disappointing in a way because you wanted to keep that to yourself. Yeah, this is mine. But at the same point, you're like, oh, my God, now we have a chance to do what Nirvana was doing or what, you know, different bands from that time were doing. And so it was exciting. And being in a band at that time, you felt like the sky was the limit at that point. And how much traction did you get uh, during that time period? In the UK, we started to get traction right before I came home. Okay. So around 92, 93 is when people started going, hey, these guys. So I left the band, and um, the the band kind of fractured after that. And so our drummer, Pete, um, who's like a little brother to me, he went into a band at the time called Elmer Hassel. I don't know where the name comes from. I don't even know what it means. But... They end up doing like five shows a Green Day. They did really well for a while. And um, the lead singer to the band I was in, Crane Flies, there is a company out there called Media Molecule. Oh, yeah. Based out of London. They make video games. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's how I know them. They that, make that is Dreams. What, they make Little Big Planet. They make all that stuff. Mark Healy is a brother to me, and <laughs> I love that guy dearly. And um, I would so love to get him and Pete here to the U.S., dust off the old stuff and do a couple of shows. By the way, is something that the band I was in in Spokane, Washington, was a band called Flourish, who after I left the band, there's a, there's a thing here, after I left the band, actually did get signed and, and did quite well for a while. Um, but me, uh, Pete, uh, me uh, Steve, uh, Scott, and Jeremy are going to be doing some shows in this local area. We're dusting off all the old stuff, and, and we're really excited about it. And so we're trying to line up a pretty impressive lineup of some other bands. Um, I've been talking with a friend of mine from Norway who had a band called Asleep mm-hmm. um, that was really popular in the mid-late 90s. Uh, and actually, take that back, mid-2000s, uh, first decade of the 2000s. Um, and Frederick and I have been talking back and forth. We've been talking about collaborating for a long time. But uh, he's going to come over, and we're going to just do this thing. And I don't know what it is yet, but my goal is to get a couple of bigger-name acts to come into the surf and then we just open up for them and that's like our gig. But have you we, played the surf? I've never played the surf. I would love to. I would absolutely love to. That'd be so much fun. <laughs> I, I mean, I've played rooms that big, but yeah. I've never played the surf. Well, it's yeah. it's different. Yeah, I mean, for one, that being the hometown place and the history. Oh, that the, it has. the history behind it. Um, a, a quick story. Um, another very good friend of mine who I met in the UK, and I actually. We talked about forming a band uh, for a while. That a guy by the name of Jeremy Thompson was the drummer for the Atlanta band Nashville Pussy, mm-hmm. and they were Reverend Horton Heat's kind of like their their their, their, their opening act. Yeah. yeah, their warm up act for many several years. And uh, so when they would come to Fort Lauderdale, I'll go and hang out with them and just kind of you know before their show go their sound check. We'd all go to dinner. So we were having dinner, and the guys from Reverend Horton Heat was there, and and Jim the Rev is awesome guy. Mm-hmm. So we're sitting there, and he just looks at me in his Texas twang. He goes, hey, man, where are you from? I go, oh, I just live here in Hollywood. He mm-hmm. goes, no, man, where are you from? Not where I do go, you live, where are you yeah, from? I go, I'm from Clear Lake, Iowa. And he sat back. He goes, I have always wanted to play the surf ballroom. <laughs> and I just, I said, dude, if I ever end up in that area again, I'll do my best to try to get you to come in. And so... um Maybe we can get the Rev to come in. Because, I mean, it's just a popular band, especially with car people and motorcycles. Oh, yeah. People travel to see him. Well, it's a name. And, yeah, and, yeah. And he had the song Martini Time, which was huge in the mid-'90s. And 
tremendous band to watch live because they're incredibly talented guys. So how do you go from music to photography? So where does that transition happen? It, it transitions while I was living on the island of Guam. How do you get to <laughs> How do you yeah, get I've to been Guam? All over. Um, my ex-wife, who we're still very good friends because we have a daughter involved and we were adults about our divorce, um, she works for the Department of Defense. She's mm-hmm. a government contractor. And so she was asked to, we were living in South Carolina at the time, she was asked to go to the island of Guam for a couple of years to work with a unit that was out there. Um, and long story short, she's in the intelligence community. So interesting home life. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, that's how, a whole, how, how that's a whole the, different segment. On how did the divorce go? Yeah, yeah, Sir, I'd like to enter this into the court <laughs> proceedings. <laughs> we have a list of websites here. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, um, so we went out there. And I was working in, in advertising at the time for Knight Ritter who's mm-hmm. now McClatchy. Um, I was working for the state newspaper uh, and ironically was working in this new thing called online advertising. Now, who had ever thought that would take off? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Nobody thought it was going to work back then. And so I was on the team that was a joint venture with Gannett that brought forth like cars.com, um, uh, apartments.com, career builder. We were all the team that pushed that into the marketplace. And so it was kind of fun to be a part of that. It was kind of the wild, wild west days in the Nobody internet. knew what to expect. Car dealers got it immediately they, uh, because of the money they spent on advertising. They understood it like that. But the, even the advertising department within the newspaper, and we got pushed into a corner. People were like, yeah, those, those are the digital guys. They're not going anywhere. And they would fight to keep us out of things. But, you know, it is what it is now. Now, online advertising, if you don't do it, you're crazy. Ah, but it's um, flipped completely. Exactly. Yeah. Now newspapers are the dinosaur. And uh, but um, anyway, we, yeah, we ended up on the island of Guam. And so that was my cue that I had to I wanted to get out of I wanted to get back into my creative life. And so that was my cue to this is your chance. So I had a talk with my wife and and I was like, you know, I, I just got to get my feet back underneath me because I don't feel like I know who I am anymore. And um, so she agreed as long as I did something. Well, I was already a certified scuba diver. So I went to work at uh, Micronesian Divers Association, which is if you ever, if anyone is ever a scuba diver listening to this and you have the chance to go to the Western Pacific, dive with MDA. They're amazing. And they're, they're, the company's owned by tremendous people. I loved working out there. Really quick to stop you for a second. Mm-hmm. Is there enough scuba diving in North Iowa? Because we have a scuba diving store in yeah. Mason City, Believe which has always not, blown my mind. When I was living in Guam, there's a magazine for dive instructors. And they did this whole thing on the best quarry dives in America. Top 20 quarry dives. Big Blue was in it. Oh, for real? Yeah. Guam. Iowa getting the Guam well, shot. That was, yeah. Global, oh, yeah, global that was a global instructor. Uh, Patty Instructor uh, magazine that I would get every month. And um, Big Blue and I looked at that and I went, dude, we used to party out there. That's where you went to get drunk and go skinny dipping, you know, or dump a friend's car into it, you know, whatever, which did happen. Uh, I'm not saying why, but it happened. Um, But, yeah, it's it's so funny to see that. But, you know, that's where all the training gets done here because I think it's, what, 70 feet deep? It gets 
quite deep. I don't. I honestly, it's I've cool never scuba dived. I don't yeah. want to find out what the bottom. But is you like know, clear lake's too shallow because clear lake. I think its max depth is only twenty four feet, and it's really poor visibility. But up in Minnesota, there's a lot of lake diving up there, and uh, a lot of lake diving in Okaboji, Believe it or not. I guess I, I'm just I'm not in that community. Yeah, yeah I didn't know. I, was, I, I always thought we're like one of the farthest places from the ocean. Yeah, <laughs> what's going on here? Um, well, yeah, believe it or not. And and when I be when I was really struggling on whether to become an instructor or not. And the guy who kind of convinced me to be an instructor, and, I, and he was like, you got to do it. He goes, because I was working with him as a dive master, um, which is I can help him teach a class, but I can't certify people. And so um, I was helping Hans teach his classes. And he's like, dude, you're awesome with the students. He goes, you, you need to be an instructor. I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm here for another year and a half. When I leave here, dude, I could go to Montana. And he looks at me and goes, they dive in Montana. They just don't do it in an ocean. They do it in the mountain lakes, and they do it in rivers, and they do it in all this other stuff. And he showed me this video of these guys river diving. It looked like so much fun. I was like, okay, I'm going to become a diver. Yeah. <laughs> so I did, and, and I ended up working at South Beach Divers in, in Miami, which was a ton of fun. You're working with celebrities. You're working with you know, all these really interesting people, people from all over the world coming there just to get certified in diving. Um, and um, I stepped away from that when photography, yeah, I had to make a decision. So I made a decision with photography. I still dive. I'm still a certified instructor. Um, and I've certified almost 750 divers. Oh, wow. Yeah. So when you switch gears and decide photography is how you're going to butter your bread. Yeah. Was that a big decision? Was that a tough decision? It was tough at the time because, I mean, obviously I had this thing with diving, which was making me decent money. And, but photography was getting there. And so I had to make a decision. Otherwise, one of them was going to suffer. I didn't want the photography to suffer because that was my creative life. And, I'm, and I just had to finally admit to myself, I'm an artist. I'm a creative person. And that's what I need to be pursuing in life is my creativity. Well, diving, you got to do things by the book. This is the way things have to be done or, you know, you could get in danger, well, I'm yeah, guessing. Well, yeah, yeah, because when you're diving, you're held to a standard. Yeah. You have to teach things a certain way. You have to... When you're, you have to conduct each dive a certain way. It's very regimented. And obviously, you have people's lives at stake. So, and I get that, and I, and I was totally with it. I never, I never got tired of that. Because in the water, it's different every day. And that, I think that's what I like about my photography. Every day is different. You're not going to an office, grabbing your coffee mug, sitting in the same chair every day. You might be going to the same shop every day, but you've got eight new students you've never met before and never seen before. You get to play with their personalities. You get to learn a little bit about them. I love that. That's education on it, the nth level for me. Well, for instance, today, neither of us knew that we were exactly. going to be doing this exactly. when we woke up. You know, whether God, it was you're going to regret this one. <laughs> 4.30 in the morning or whatever time you woke up this morning. Um, so photography, um, you, you kind of get into it in Guam, and yeah. then from Guam, photography brings yeah. you to? Miami. To Miami. Yeah. Okay. Just going, it, going back to Guam real quick, um, there was, there's an artist named Wyland. Very famous artist. He does the big underwater murals on the sides of buildings. Okay. Um, look him up. It's, it's like Scott Weiland, the singer, W-Y-L-A-N-D. And uh, he's got um, galleries all over the world, and he, he does quite well for himself. Um, his principal photographer is a guy by the name of Chris Bangs, and Chris lives on the island of Guam. And it was Chris who told me, look, dude, if you want to do this, do it, because you have what it takes you have the eye for it. All you need is a little bit more camera knowledge, and you're there. 
So did you need somebody to tell you that in order to make that decision? I I think so because I had gotten into a mindset that I couldn't make a living through my creativity because the the band struggled. The band, every band I was in struggled. Yeah. I, I was talking to another musician that I was living with for a while, American guy. And, um, uh, Kurt and I were laughing about how little money we made. And we figured out between the two of us, we were making about six, $700 a month. Well, we didn't have bills. Apartment. We had no bills. Yeah. But our, our apartment was this fully furnished servants' quarters on the backside of this Victorian mansion in this town called Woodbridge, England. So the people didn't need the money. You know, they just didn't have servants. The family didn't have servants anymore. So we rented that for the equivalent of 200 American dollars a month. It was 150 pounds a month at that point. Our next door neighbor was Brian Eno. Get a load of that, right? And we had no idea. We just, who's that skinny bald guy next door? You know, you're just like, whatever. And then, you know, this this British girl that we knew, we were out at a pub one night and she was like, Where do you guys live? And we're like, Well, we live at Five Pitches Road. She looks at me, she's like, Is there something I don't know about you? There's no way you can afford to live on Pitches Road. Do you Road. have daddy's money? In yeah, exactly. What, what's and we're on? like, No, we we told her yeah, how the arrangement was we had with this family and stuff. And, uh, and she goes, Oh, so you must know Brian then. And I look at Kurt and I go, we must know Brian. She goes, you idiot. You don't know who your next door neighbor is. And I were like, no. She goes, it's Brian bloody, you know. So she didn't say bloody. She used Another a, word. a different expletive. Yeah. And I looked at Kurt and I go, we need to get to know Brian. We never did. And we, we had a few very small conversations with him. But every once in a while, you know, he had a studio in this four-story house that he had. It was massive. And every once in a while, like this car with blacked out windows would pop up and they'd pull onto the other side of the house. And you're like standing out there going, I wonder who that is. We should you know, go borrow a cup of tea real quick. Yeah. Who's yeah in the house? Excuse me. You have any sugar? <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah. When you get to Miami, are you um, doing underwater photography there? Yeah, I mean, and I'm, that's how you're going to start your well, I'm, I'm, career? I'm, no, I'm teaching, I'm teaching scuba diving all-encompassing. There's mm-hmm. several classes I teach. Underwater videography, underwater photography is just two of them. And, so, and it was ones I didn't really teach very much. I taught it a lot out in Guam. But um, in Miami, I didn't teach it very much. But while working in the shop, there was a gentleman who would come in and get tanks filled. And um, Sasha, the owner of the shop, knew that I was into photography. And one day when this guy left, he goes, you know who you're just talking to, right? And I'm like, no. He goes, that's Sid Holtzel. And I had heard Sid's name because uh, he's a very, very well-known commercial photographer. Like He was Bacardi's guy for a long time. And these are the ads we're seeing in magazines? Magazines, billboards, okay. you name it. Um, and there's things in commercial photography that he was like the pioneering guy of like how to do that. And so I knew who he was. So Bacardi, like the ones, am I thinking of the ones where they're doing all the different stuff with the bottles and all that sort of stuff too? Like making the bottle? Like, yeah. Okay, he, in, I don't say invented, but he's the one who made popular how to make a bottle look like it's sweating when you're working at room temperature and it's not a chilled bottle. He huh. never showed me how he did it. He won't show anybody how he does it, but he pioneered that technique. Wow. Also, he pioneered the technique of ice cubes so that they wouldn't melt. They're made out of polished acrylic. Oh. And he got this company to make some for him, and now they make them for photographers all over the world. That's crazy. Yeah. So the next time he came into the shop and I was there, I was setting up for a class, and uh, he came in and, I was like, hey, Sid, you know, I would love to come see your studio sometime. And he's like, yeah, come on. You know, I'm doing a shoot tomorrow. Come and watch us. So I went and um, 
you, know, you walk into this place and as a photographer, it's like walking into Disneyland. You're just like, everything I wanted to be as a photographer is right here. You know, every piece of equipment, the computers, the whole setup, the studio. Is it tough not to geek out in that situation? Oh, dude, I geek out every day. But, but you weren't worried like, oh, I don't want to embarrass you. No, know, no, no. Be, oh, be weird in front well, of the here, sky. Here's, here's the, the fun part. Um, I grew up in a family that had a big celebrity connection. So you learned kind of to temper yourself a little bit when you met someone who was famous. So not that Sid is a famous guy, but in the world of photography, he's a big name and has been for a long time. And so, yeah, walking in there, you're just like, you're just fascinated. You're like, whoa, I've never seen that before. And what's that and this, that. And so just sitting back and watching him. And uh, I didn't know anything about studio lighting at that point. Everything for me was using available light. And, um, and at the end of the day, uh, he goes, hey, I need an assistant on this shoot that we're doing for Joe's Stone Crab, which is not Joe's Crab Shack. Different Joe's deal. Stone Crab, which is in Miami, which is like if you want like the best stone crab you've ever had, it's going to cost you $300, but it's going to be an amazing meal. And so um, I'm like, yeah. Uh, and he, you know, he paid me for it. And then at the end of the day, he, he knew that I didn't know a whole lot about studio setups. And he's like, you want an education in this? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, all right, come and work with me on your days off. And that's what I did when I wasn't teaching diving. I did that. Right place, right time. Oh, right place, right time. I got, I've, I've been so lucky. I, I never said this is all because of me. Some of it is. But when you're getting started and you can meet and work with influential people like that, that's everything. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that and so thankful that I've had those opportunities. And luckily for myself, I've had a knack of just being in the right place at the right time to further my photography career. You know, so me, you know, maybe this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Now with your photography career, um, forgive me if I'm jumping too far into the future, but Jump you've, had, you want. you've had the chance to uh, do sports photography. Mm-hmm. You've had the chance to do concert photography. Yeah. I spent a long time chasing music festivals around the planet. Which, which one is funner? Which one's more difficult to do? That's a good question. Well, I worked for Ultra Music Festival in Miami for eight. Big, I was their principal photographer for eight years. Deal. Yeah, for eight years, and that one was always fun. Number one, I wasn't living in a hotel for a week, but um, it was. Is the setting is awesome. You're right on the water, at downtown Miami, and it's it's got all the glitz and the glamour to it. When I started shooting that festival, no one really cared about it. About three years into it, all of a sudden it became this massive thing and a global thing. The nightmare festival to shoot was Electric Daisy Carnival out in Las Vegas. It's now, so the Electric Daisy Carnival. Yep. It what just happened a couple that? weeks ago. It's so massive. It's 160,000 people. Number one, the festival doesn't even start until about 730 at night because you're in Vegas and it's 100 degrees. But you just, for four days, you get no sleep. And it's so dark. They have it at the Miami International Raceway. And it's so dark out there that you have a hard time. If you're not familiar with it, like the first year you shoot it, you're lost half the time. And that's what makes it tough. And it's just, it's such a big event. You know, you're walking a mile to get from one stage to another. And then in the course of a night, you're walking about 25 miles. A marathon. <laughs> yeah, dude. It is a marathon it's, photography it's, session. It's brutal. It's visually fascinating. And everyone's happy and having a good time and, you know, but 
to shoot it, it's a beast. So are you freelancing at these festivals where you're trying to take pictures that Some, yes. somebody like Rolling Stone and uh-huh. Spin might pick up? Or um, are- festivals is, is festivals are very controlled now. When I started, it was all freelance. And then all of a sudden, the, the festivals started taking control of the content. So then what they did is there were like, there were teams. So when I started with Ultra, it was just me and one other guy covering eight stages. <laughs> Eight stages for three days. First it was two days, then it moved into three days. But um, So, yeah, you got beat up, and you were tired, and they didn't really pay you that well. But then once the marketing kicked in for that festival, and, and it's, uh, Ultra is celebrating, I think, their 21st anniversary this, this next coming March. Oh, wow. So, no, no, 22nd. This year was 21. Had been around that long? Yeah, it's been around wow. since uh, 98, I think, was the first one. Yeah, 98 was the first one. So last year was the 20th anniversary. Um, and it's grown. So it started with one stage on South Beach with like 10 acts. Now it's over 100 acts, eight stages, three days, and it's massive. And they they broadcast it globally. Um, but, yeah, so then we started forming teams. So as you're shooting these festivals, you get to know other photographers, other, other music photographers, and they're from all over the world. And so you start forming these little groups, and he's like, hey, you know, I'll work with these guys, but these guys, no, I won't work with them. And so there's, there's a, uh, a live uh, coverage, which I worked for for a little bit. Um, I tried to stay as independent as possible because it allowed me to shoot other things, uh, other festivals and like other acts and artists. Um, so I was always kind of on the fringe of it. Like I would, They would say, hey, can you do this? Yeah, I'll go do it. Um, so, but I stepped away from that because... Even like in my 40s, I was the old man. Everyone else is in their 20s and 30s. So, you know, I was kind of like the, the wise old sage. But you know, these, my body just couldn't really take it anymore. Is there a, a difference in the style of photography between you as a 40-year-old mm-hmm. on the festival circuit and some up-and-coming 23-year-old? taking pictures on the festival Yeah, they circuit. can contort their bodies into shapes I can't anymore. Oh, to get the yeah. angles and whatnot. <laughs> you know, um... Because I've done a lot of photojournalism as well, with shooting sports especially, you learn to shoot things very linear. There's some really creative guys out there doing some really cool things, but when it comes to festival photography, the art is in the editing. How to make that look like it was just bigger than life. Yeah, your camera settings are one thing, but once you get into post-production and you bump the shadows out and kick the colors up and you know make the fireworks look better than they do in camera, that's where the art is. And there's some guys that are just wizards. How, how often, when I'm looking at a picture either in uh, the newspaper, a magazine, or mm-hmm. online, how often is that a raw photograph? All, and there's been debates about this because people have been caught removing things from photojournalism. Photojournalism, in its purest form, is a raw image. You can crop, you can maybe pull some shadows out and bump the colors a little bit, but you are not allowed to manipulate. You're not allowed to add things to it or take things out of it. It has to be the image you got. So I love that because it really challenges you as a photographer because you're working on the fly. you got no time to think, but it really gets you like on your game quick. Well, I mean, in this, this world of fake news yeah. and deep fakes yeah. and everything else, yep. uh, sometimes you wonder, is this real, Yeah, what I'm looking at right now? Yeah. You know, if it's photojournalism, it's real. But if it's like, if you're looking at images from a live coverage, or if you're looking at the festival images from the festival team, 
stuff's been added because it's a marketing aspect. You bump up the colors. Well, you you, you not just bump the brighter. colors, but let's say you shot the stage and um, there weren't fireworks, but you went there later and there were fireworks, but they like this picture, but they wish it had fireworks. You add the fireworks to it because it's a marketing image. Okay. They're, they're, not, they're selling the story, but they're selling the story to pump up sales for next year. Now, when I'm covering, like I've covered President Obama, I've covered Hillary. I actually did some work for Hillary's campaign in 2008. Um, I've covered the Republicans. I photographed the Dalai Lama. I mean, those are straight out of the camera raw images with slight cropping and maybe a little bit of color correction just so you can see the image better. But, yeah, that's where you got to be on your toes as a photographer because stuff happens so fast. Can you tell when somebody's Photoshopped an image? Oh, yeah. When you're looking at oh, it? Oh, yeah. You can, you can go, I see you, what they yeah. did right there. Yeah. You yeah. you can, um, yeah, there was just an image that hit, you know, because Trump was over in London. And there was an image of him being Canada in the motorcade surrounding his limo. I saw that. Okay, yes. so you know what I'm talking yes. about. Yes. The phallic thing. Yes. Whatever. With I don't know what I'm allowed to what I'm not yeah. allowed to say here. <laughs> I'll refer to Carlin on this one yeah. of the seven deadly words. But it was in a male member with yeah. So that was photo you could tell immediately it was photoshopped. I went to Snopes yeah. on that one and they yeah. did the breakdown and showed that, but yeah. I can't tell. Yeah. I was like <laughs> when what you a look at an image, there, there's, there's something about an aesthetic to an image that when something's been placed in it or something's been manipulated, the a trained eye can see yeah, dude, that's not that's not real, and you probably should probably shouldn't have that out there. But it's like listening because to, it's misinformation, is what it is. Listening to radio commercials or even television commercials, I can tell where the edits happen yeah. in the audio. Oh yeah, just because I've worked in it for yep. two decades, I'm like, ah, yeah. I see where you cut that in, slice in <coughs> your phone number or whatnot. Is there a picture that you wish you would have taken? Oh, there's many pictures. I whether yeah. it's something that you didn't have your camera with that only you saw with your eyes or a world famous photograph. You know, every you time I go to a concert and I'm not photographing, I go, God, I wish you would have gotten credentials for this. You know, <laughs> especially if it's like, you know, a, a, a band that I've always wanted to shoot or something kind of special happens. But um, an individual image, I just say, God, I wish that was mine. And there's so many because there's so many just guys who just blaze it. I can't really put it on one, but um, there's stuff that my friends have shot, and I'm just like, dude, I was right in that spot 30 seconds before you took that, and you got that? Dude, I want to punch you. <laughs> right place, right time. Right time, yeah. yeah. And it's it's all about positioning, you know? And and I've been at concerts where fights have broken out in the photographer pit because people are, they, they know what that shot's going to be, and you get two guys elbowing each other for a spot. That can get rowdy because I've it seen. It gets rowdy. I, I have not luckily been a part of it as a media member, but I've seen like the press corps around uh, uh, p- politicians oh, yeah. where it's like an episode of Jerry Springer behind the cameras. <laughs> it, there's a lot of jostling. And, you know, I'm 6'2 and 250. So people don't push me around too much. And, and I can usually kind of wedge my way in when I need to. But I've seen some crazy stuff. Um. Yeah. Talking about uh, shooting concerts uh, and uh, pho- photographing <laughs> musicians, can you share any stories about that? Yeah. Well, you want good ones or bad ones? <laughs> Little of both. Um, I think I think my favorite ones, stories of like, um, just the band playing, like the singer playing to your camera. Someone, they see you. They see you. They know you're there. Skinnerd played to me. One of the guitarists in, in Skinnerd played to my camera for like almost the whole show. 
I was like, and at the end of the show, I like, I like gave him like the thank you so much for that because yeah. the pictures were awesome. Um, who else played to my camera? Tim McGraw played to my camera when I photographed him. Um, was that Buff Tim McGraw or Mullet Tim McGraw? I'd say Buff because he had short hair. Okay. Not as tall as I thought he would be. Um, <laughs> but in uh, the way he's skinny, really, he's a skinny dude. Well, I saw him at Tree Town, and yeah. I was like, man, he's 50-something. And just yeah, I, I photographed him at the Tortuga Music Festival, which is uh, in Fort Lauderdale, mm-hmm. right on the beach. Which is, But I love bands who just, man, they just get it done. They know it's a performance. Yeah, it, yeah. And then you can tell when the guys are just, I always have a rule about when I go see a band that I want to see, don't go see them on the last five shows of their tour because they're just spent and they don't care. Um, but, yeah, I just I love bands who just bring it. And But um, horror stories? Yeah. I've been kicked out of the arena a couple of times <laughs> by very famous artists. Uh, Drake kicked me out of the arena. His people kicked me out. Um, I was hired to, to photograph him. Um, at the Bank United Center at the University of Miami, which is now under another name because Bank United Bank is no longer their sponsor. Um, and this would have been around 2012, and it was on Valentine's Day. And so um, I get into the pit. They've already paid me. His people have already paid me. And I'm also, the arena was one of my clients too, so I'm working for the arena at the same time. And so... <laughs> Right before he goes on, I get this hand on my shoulder. He's like, hey, Drake doesn't want any photos. I'm like, you guys, I'm here because of you. And he's like, yeah, he changed his mind. Did the check clear? Oh, the check cleared. So you, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, got, I got it a week before the show. So okay. I was like, I cash that stuff immediately. Because <laughs> you never know when the next one's coming sometimes. But, um, and it's never a huge amount. You know, it's a couple hundred dollars. It's nothing big. But, um, so I'm like, all right. But I know that the arena needs their photos. So now I leave the photographer's pit, and the first thing I do is I look for a spot where I can photograph over the top of the heads of the crowd and still make it look like I'm where I'm supposed to be. So I run to the back of the arena, I grab a longer lens, and I go up onto the side in the bleacher area, and I stand in the the walkway, the aisle. Mm Mm-hmm. Security for big name acts are they're trained to look for cameras. And so one thing they they like to do, and a lot of security people do this, is they carry little mag lights with them, and when they see a camera, they they put it in your lens so it blinds you and you can't see. So I get about 20, 30 shots into Drake, and all of a sudden I get this light in my lens. I'm like, crap. Well, I know all the security in the arena because I work there, I shoot basketball, I shoot every political event there. The local guys. Yeah, it's the local guys. So the, one of the guys I know comes up. He goes, "Hey man, they said they told you to get out of here." I'm like, "Yeah, okay, yeah, I'm leaving. I'm leaving." So I walk. I, I step down onto the floor again. I walk to the other side of the arena and get like in the same spot on the on the opposite side. Get about thirty, forty shots in. Another light in my lens. Another security guy goes, "Hey man, that guy said he's told you to leave twice." I'm like, "Crap! All right, dude, I'm going. I'm going." So I go back by the sound booth. I stand up on a chair. I start shooting and someone grabs my leg and it's the security guy with the, with the, with the flashlight saying, I told you to get your ass out of here. Mm-hmm. I'm like, he goes, if you don't leave right now, we're taking your camera and your card. I'm like, okay. uh, all right, dude, I'm out. I'm out. I go back into the offices where the general manager, who was actually a very good friend of mine, they're sitting there. 
And then he goes, do you get me my shots? I'm like, dude, I just got tossed out of here. I didn't get, I really didn't get anything. He's like, they threw you out? I'm like, yeah, they told me if they if I come back in, they're taking my camera. So why didn't he want pictures? Was he hungover? He just didn't you feel know, like it? Yeah, dude. So, artists are weird, man. I, huh. I can attest for myself. Dude, yeah. I'm weird. Yeah. But, uh, all of a sudden, they're not feeling it. I'm trying to remember the name of the band. It wasn't New Radicals. Oh, I was shooting them in Atlanta. And the lead singer had this paranoia about cameras. And he had this thing like, he thought that the government was watching him kind of a thing. Mm. Yeah, it was really strange. I, I wish I could remember the name of the band. Not that I would want to disparage them because yeah. they were a great band. But um, he uh, he ordered all the photographers out of the pit. No no photos whatsoever. And that was a music festival. So, and so these, we had to leave the entire area. How do these artists and security feel about people with their camera phones then? Or that doesn't matter. There's actually a new technology if an arena wants to invest in it that they can jam cell phones so you can't take pictures so you can't take a picture because i know you can build jammers that will block cell phone signals yeah but they but they will they can block the cameras from using their camera for the or the phones from using their cameras no one's really employed it yet but it's out there Huh. Um, I wonder if that's why we don't have any photos of UFOs now that we have camera phones. <laughs> you know what? You might have the a point UFOs there. UFOs <laughs> have had that forever. You <laughs> may have a point. These little gray guys, man. They don't want photos. They're a little shy. But no, um, yeah, it, everybody's different. You know, there's like Dave Grohl in Foo Fighters. They're awesome with photographers. You know, they play to your camera. You know, they'll point at you. They'll make faces at you. Um, yeah, they, they'll do a lot of cool things. And, and But there's some artists, man, they just... They think you're a distraction hmm. or a lot of bands now, if they don't, if they can't control your content, there's this big thing about Ariana Grande just had this big issue with photographers where if you shoot one of her shows, you have to hand over your copyrights and she has to approve any image you choose to use to promote what you, you know, what you shot at the show. And to me, that's just over. It's just, come on, man. It's, I'm not giving you my, we're image. all people here, yeah. you know, just because you have this, once in a lifetime opportunity to do what you do doesn't mean you have to be a control freak about it. I, in, in the, in the music photography industry as a whole is, is thinks a lot like me. They're, they're like, man, we're just trying to do a job. We're trying to help you get bigger and show, you know, so yeah, there's same thing with interviews on the radio. I'm trying to help just promote your thing. Yeah. You know, sorry for being, you know, waking you up. Don't air that last segment or I'll sue you. No, (laughs) yeah, that sort of thing. But yeah, that's what it's getting down to. And and so now uh, copyright laws are really being attacked, especially with, with online. It's, it's hard to keep, I've had so many photos stolen and used in publications that, you know, there was like blogs and stuff like that. And I, you can't really go after someone like that. And it gets to a point where, one picture shows up in so many places. You're like, yeah, I'm just glad they're using it. You know, wow. I already got paid for it. I'm good. <laughs> you watermark your photos when you when you're sending them out. Do you have like a little I, thing I, in there? Um, it depends what I'm doing. Like if I'm shooting a music festival, you're not allowed to use your own watermarks. You have to use a watermark at the festival because they're paying you. For right, the they're paying you. Yeah. yeah. Um, I still retain all the copyrights, but I I'm not allowed to sell without their permission. Um, but I still own the photos. Um. Yeah, it's the whole copyright thing's just turning into this weird. One more thing on music before we switch gears and talk about sports. I'm a huge sports mm-hmm, guy, right. so I, I can't wait to talk about this. But um, for band photos, album uh-huh. covers, which yeah. I, I don't know that album covers are even honestly a thing really anymore. Are You'd they? be surprised. They, they they still do band photos. The 
cliche rock band on a brick wall by the train tracks. Yeah. Why? And do people still do it? People still do it. Or the staircase. Oh, my God. You, and why won't anybody there, there, look at the camera? Dude, there, there's, there's a couple of websites for people who are trying to get into modeling. One is called Model Mayhem. And the other one, oh, man, I was on it for a little bit when I was doing a lot of test shooting. Uh, one Model Place, OMP. And you see a thousand girls standing on trade tracks in a bikini. It's like, really, guys? Come on, be more creative than that. I don't know. I think it's like this. I'm not sure what the whole aesthetic of I've never done that. I've always sought other avenues to, to get my shot. Um, you know, dude, if you're in a place that has a beach, just use the beach. I mean, it's bright and it's sunny and it's beautiful. You got a beautiful girl. Shoot it there. Why are you dragging someone into an industrial area? I get it. Beautiful girl in a horrible place kind of a thing. Yeah. But I think the train track brick wall thing is like, oh, edgy, dangerous area. Could get killed. But here we have these bad boys of rock and roll. Yeah. And it's uh I want to see a goth band on Miami Beach for an album cover. I would just I would I would do that just to watch them sweat and get sunburnt. <laughs> sweat and get sunburnt. You pale bastards. Stand over there. You know? This is gonna take four hours. I hope the leather breeze. <laughs> oh my goodness. And the sunblock works. Now, um sports photography. Mm-hmm. Um you're currently the photographer for um, publication of the Hawkeyes. The Voice of the Hawkeyes. Voice yep. of the Hawkeyes. Yep. Yes. Voice of the Hawkeyes. Um, I've been shooting uh, for them now for four years. Um, I My first shoot with them was the, was the Rose Bowl. And um, before that, I had provided photos for Rivals.com and HawkeyeReport.com, which is owned by Yahoo. And, um, yeah, so I've been shooting Iowa football since 2006. Do you get to pay for parking when you go to Kinnick? Never. Never. Okay, so you get that. You get that. Every time. every place I go to, I get media parking. Okay. And the best part about Kinnick is it's right there across the street in the north end zone. I, I get out of my car, I walk less than a hundred yards and I'm in the stadium. When you tell people that you're a photographer for the Hawkeyes, mm-hmm. you know, for, for the voice of the Hawkeyes. Yep. Do you see jealousy come across their face? Because I mean no, Hawkeye you, fans not, not, are diehards. Not, je- not jealousy. Usually I get a you need someone to carry your bag. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, get in line because <laughs> you're like the 300th person that's asked me that today. Uh, you know, I know I have something special, and not everyone gets to do that. In fact, there's a lot of media photographers from smaller market newspapers that can't even get on the sidelines. So I realize what I have. I mean, I worked hard for those connections. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's not – It's usually people are, like, fascinated, like, oh, you know. And so I, I will share, like, a couple stories, like things I've heard, you know, said on mm-hmm. the sidelines or – or, you know, you get a different perspective down there. Believe it or not, you miss a lot of the game because you have – I have a shot list. You of have certain, a job. Yeah, I have a job to do. So I have a shot list of things that the publication needs. They need pictures of this player. We need coaching shots. We need, whatever, you know, some crowd shots. So you get focused. So, like, if if I was going to do – a if they, they were doing a piece on, like, Noah Fant. Mm-hmm. And so – sorry. Um, and I, they need – images of Noah Fant in this particular game. So I'm looking down the barrel of my lens and I'm on Noah Fant. So I'm following him on the play while something else is going on. And it's something breaks big. Now all of a sudden I got to break over here. You got to react, but I don't even know how it got open or how the guy broke a tackle. I just got to get the, the, the after of how he's now suddenly running down the field. 
with I the can, ball. I can relate. I do so. the um, announcing for the North Iowa Bulls hockey team, uh-huh. and I say we have the best seat in the house because we're oh, right it up. Is. Scores box right there, on the dude. glass. You, you smell it. You breathe it. The but f- I miss half the game. Yeah, because I'm working. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm paying attention to a script. Yep. Paying attention to a computer. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, people are screaming, and I'm like, "Is that a good scream or a bad scream? Yeah. What kind of scream is that oh, that just happened? Talk about bad screams. <laughs> the Penn State game, the last home Penn State game from two seasons ago, when they scored on that last touchdown, or Monty Hooker looked like he was going to tip the ball and he just missed it. So that was going to be a huge upset. Penn State was highly ranked. We were, you know, we were having a great season, but that would have just propelled us, you know, to a higher spot in the rankings or whatever. So the students, I was down in the end zone where the students were, and it was down at the far end of the field. So I have a 600 millimeter lens, so I can reach all the way down the field. And I was, all of a sudden, I was like, oh, you could feel the student section lining up behind you. I'm like, I am not about to get run over by 15,000 kids. So I moved over by the Penn State bench. So then my shot became, I'm going to get the reaction of the Iowa bench when this goes incomplete or we intercept it or we win the game. So I'm sitting next to the Penn State bench. The stadium is it's like a jet engine going in your ears, right? So I follow the play, and as soon as he cranks back to throw, I sweep over to the bench, and all of a sudden the place goes quiet. And the only people cheering are the Penn State guys. And I'm like, he caught that freaking ball. Oh, that sucked. And you saw the whole student say, just go, just deflate. The whole place just collapsed. I was like, that, yeah. So, it, so when you're on the field, you feel that. You feel exactly what the players are feeling at that moment because you hear them, you see them, and they're walking within two feet of you. And you're, when I was at the Rose Bowl, and we had a rough go in that first quarter, when, Stanford intercepted that pass and ran it back for the touchdown to go up 21 to nothing. I was right next to the Iowa bench. And you felt and heard that whole bench just go, oh. The second that happened, the coaches were right on top of them. Come on, guys, we got a game to play. Let's dig ourselves out of the hole and trying to pick them back up. Up until that point, even though we were down 14 nothing because we had started to move the ball, the, the bench was up. Dude, we've been in this position before. We're going to freaking come back. The second that Stanford went up 21 to nothing, it was like the the spirit left the room. And they continued fighting. They ended up playing a better second half. And, you know, they, they made a game out of it a little bit. Obviously, the score was way out of reach, but they didn't quit. I have so much admiration for the Ferentz crew, coaching staff, because they just don't let those guys quit. Now, by the use of we, are you using that in a we, I work with the Hawkeyes, or we, I'm a Hawkeye fan? Both. Both? Is yeah. it tough to put the fandom away while you're working? Oh, I cheer through the lens every play. I'll be yelling and screaming. You know, I mean, they always say there's a rule, no cheering in the press box. I'm not in the press box. I'm on the field, and no one can hear me because <laughs> <laughs> the crowd's so loud. You know. So, yeah, I cheer through the lens, you know. You know, I... I have little interactions with the players on the sidelines and stuff, and some of them are, some of those guys are hilarious. Um, they'll make faces at me. They'll do certain things, and uh, um, it's. I think that's the other aspect of the job that I love so much is that I get to know, on a different level, the players and their families. I've gotten to know the Epinesa family so well. They're not a number. They're not. Yeah, the it's not ninety four out there. Yeah. AJ is one of the coolest kids ever. And the way he's been raised, 
don't be surprised if he doesn't go to the NFL after this season. He stays and gets his degree. His dad, Epi, dude, that guy's like, he's a king, man. That guy is so awesome with his kids and the community that he lives in. He's, he's a, a one-of-a-kind type of a dad. And um, getting to know the parents a little bit and, and just the peripheral of Iowa football, so much fun. That's what was really, to me, is a rewarding part of that job. Yeah, being on the field and getting all the passes and all. Yeah, okay, that's cool. That's a coolness level 10. But getting to know these kids a little bit to where when you walk on the field and they're like, hey, man, what's going to They'll ask you a question about something. Hey, I saw on your Facebook page this, that, and the other. That's, to me, that's the cream. Well, that's that's something that a lot of fans don't realize is that, you know, when you're cheering for them, which is great, cheering yeah. for the players, but when you're booing them and how could you miss that kick or that how could you miss that tackle? These frustrates me so much. These are real kids. Yeah. I mean, they're adults, they're kids, but they're but kids they are. that are 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. I had a friend that was a teacher that had um, some of the players mm-hmm. in her class, and she would say, you know, they, they, you try not to pay attention to it, but they notice, you know, oh, they notice they that notice. sort of thing. Dude, they hear it yeah. more than anybody. You know, I think I've, I, I've never been, you know, a bad performance is a bad performance, and everybody has them. I don't understand the whole fan thing of, like, I'm going to rip this guy apart. He's no good. He's not worth the scholarship. Dude, you do better. Yeah, here. Here's the ball. Yeah, here's the ball. You throw it 60 yards and hit a moving target. Come on. Really? It's a game. This isn't life and death here. This is not serious stuff. It is, but in essence, it's a game. Yeah, and I, I think I learned that perspective. Like, you know, my dad was a teacher for oh, 35 years, but he was also a coach for 17 of those years. So, and I've coached myself. I coached high school girls lacrosse. Um, I also coached baseball and wrestling. But, um, but I learned that just that perspective of like, man, in the overall scheme of things, and this is just a game, I learned that directly from my dad. I remember watching a game one time before I started shooting Iowa football. And this is like back when we were going, you know, winning the Big Ten title and stuff, and Ferentz was like the hot coach. And we just had a game where we just – Wasn't good. Uh, Stunk. And I, I'm on it. the phone with my dad. I'm I'm – I'm in uh, uh, I'm in Guam at this point, so it's like three o'clock in the morning. I'm yelling the phone, I dude, I'll get. And my dad goes, "What are you angry about?" And I go, "What do you mean?" He goes, "Were you at practice this week? What did you do to prepare for this game?" He goes, "Don't don't forget that for everything that those guys are trying to do, there's eleven other guys in the other side of the ball trying to stop it, and those guys were just better at it today." He goes, "You have no right to get mad." about something you didn't participate in. It's tough. It is. It's tough to not feel that emotion. And that really put, I, I thought about that. I was like, you know what? I'm a fan. I always hope they do well. Am I disappointed when they lose and when they probably should have won? Oh, I'm, I'm heartbroken. But I'm heartbroken for the kids who put in all the work. I'm not, I'm not, I don't feel like the team owes me. They let you down. Yeah, they didn't let me down. No. You know, they let themselves down. But they didn't do it by quitting. They just, just, they just weren't the better team that day. It's tough to separate that because I, I, I tried that approach with the Vikings, huge Vikings fan, uh-huh. of not caring so much because, yeah. you know, there's – and I was one of those people where your Sunday could be ruined by a horrible I, game. I, dude, it's ruined for like an hour for me. And then after and that, then you it's move like, on. boom, boom, yeah. And then – And then um, and it's not even ruined. I'm just like, oh, it's, it's deflating yeah. to, because you have such high hopes for these guys and, you know, they just fall short. Or they go in and they just get their butts kicked. I would rather watch – Iowa get their butt kicked, then lose on the last play of the game. Because 
inside getting your butt kicked you're just like all right it's done we're just gonna keep pushing forward let's start thinking about next week but when it's on that last play of the game or it's a tight game and you just couldn't get that stop when you needed it that's demoralizing see that that um, brings up the point i was going to make with minnesota and their uh, nfc championship against philly yeah i'm glad that that was over at halftime because i had i'd said i'm not going to get wrapped up in the team Mm -hmm. this year and then everything that happened happened with the Minneapolis miracle, and I'm like, you it's good for me your back mental yet. health. I can't let you go now. Yeah. You know, we've we've gone through yeah. this moment together, yeah. and then it, it's like, okay, fine, thirty-eight yeah. seven, we're done. This. I'm going to make a confession here. Yeah, I haven't watched an NFL game or a Super Bowl in over a decade. For real, I am a college football guy. I'm a college sports guy. Here's why: you're doing what I do, and. Uh, you know, I've been at the spring training complex for the Boston Red Sox. By the way, if you ever get down there, JetBlue Stadium is beautiful. And it's a great place to watch a game. But it, to me, it's just gotten so corporate, and it's so cold. I love the pageantry of college sports because every school's got their thing. Every school's got their tradition. You know, the fans are different. The stadiums are different. And it's just, I think there's more passion involved where the, like, I, I, I'm a big New York Yankees fan. If, so if I watch a professional sport, it's going to be baseball. And I've been a Yankees fan since I was eight years old. And, and my dad was a Yankees fan, so he kind of got me into like you know the whole pride of the Yankees thing. And um, but like to sit in a baseball stadium, you know, if the Yankees are playing, I'm good. But mm-hmm. to go sit in a baseball stadium is a day game, and everyone's sitting around you is conducting business on their phones because they didn't want to go to the office that day. Ah, get out of here with that. That's why I go to the college game because everyone's so focused on the game. No one's sitting there trying to do a deal over the phone, you know, while they read the new, the Wall Street Journal, uh, sitting in a box seat. Screw you, dude. You're not a fan. Get out of here. Have you ever worked the Yankees game? No. Um, or shot the Yankees? I have a I have a couple of connections to the Yankees. I'm afraid to try to use them. <laughs> um, and I'm also very I'm very cognizant of the connections that I have. Um, you know, and I'll be talking to friends and I'll be like, oh yeah, this, that, and the other, and I know so-and-so and, or, you know, I've worked with so-and-so and I get it all the time. Why are you here? It's a long story of why I'm here. Mm-hmm. Um, before my dad has passed away, but before my dad passed away, when my daughter, when I knew my daughter wasn't going to stay in Florida to go to university, I knew I wasn't going to stay in Florida. You didn't have family. It there. just... Yeah, there there would be no family there. Number one, and I and I was raised in a family where family is very important. Number two, living in places like that, it gets into you in a certain way, and you start noticing. I I always make the joke that Miami is a sunny place for shady people. Hmm. I need to be back where I could trust people again, and I couldn't. You couldn't trust anybody there. Friendships were very surface. You know, no one wanted deep relationships there, and. That's kind of a thing about Miami because it's a very transient city. Be more People are in the, and they're out. Did you see this? Did you hear about that? Not how do you feel about that? Yeah, no one really wants to know who you really are. It's huh. who you are you when you're around me. That's what I want you to be all the time. You know, so having a lot of Midwest, I never let go of my Midwestern sensibilities where, you know, you're not a friend to everyone, but you're cordial. You can, you, you. You can have discourse without being angry or hateful towards someone. Um, people are a little bit more mindful of other people here. You know, I was just down in Miami last week shooting for one of my corporate clients, which is European Wax Center. 
And I noticed immediately what I hated about that place. The traffic, it took me 45 minutes to go six miles. No, thank On you. On a Saturday. No, thank you. We're not even in rush hour. This is a Saturday. Saturday. When everyone I hope the AC worked in the car. Oh, I did. Thank okay, God. Good. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, otherwise it could have gotten violent. Oh, but not. I get it, of course. But, um, but yeah, I noticed immediately why I'm not there anymore. You know, I have some great friends there. I have some awesome, awesome industry connections there that I still use. But when it comes to living there, dude... I just want to be where it's quiet. Nice I, lo- I, I love my I love my downtime. I love my quiet time. And coming up here, I can still hold on to most of those clients. I'm just I'm more centrally located now, and I just want to be where there's friendly people. Well, and the nice thing about North Iowa, Southern Minnesota, where we're at, is you can be bored if you want to, or you can be busy if you want to. Yeah, yeah. I no. mean, yeah. If you're bored in South Florida, dude, you are the couch potato of all couch potatoes. <laughs> I mean, dude. The, in the right neighborhood. There's excitement going on right outside your door. I love that. A but, sunny place for shady people. Uh, is that trademarked? I I should. It should be. By the way, this is Anthony DeJern speaking. It, I have now copywriting and trademarking that. I'm going to make t-shirts that will be available on my website. That'll be the new Be Happy t-shirt. Yeah, exactly. From Forrest Gump. Miami, a sunny place for shady people. Um, plug plug uh, your business that you got locally. Yeah. Um, uh, my studio, uh, Anthony DeJern Photography. Um, which I'm getting ready to go through a little bit of a rebranding, so it, it's not going to change the name, but my branding is going to change, um, is located at uh, 3113 Main Avenue. Um, so it's in Clear Lake, and it's a 2,000-square-foot studio. Uh, it's uh, a very industrial. Uh, I, I looked for specifically that type of room. It's a converted welding shop. Oh. And so I, it's now a photography studio. And my neighbors, one guy repairs tractor trailers and the other guy builds wood pallets for shipping and they kind of look at me and go why are you in this building but i'm in the building um it took me several months to to get it all cleaned out and painted and something i hope i never have to do again because i did it pretty much all on my own and with my partner um and um it's uh it's it's what's great about it is that we have enough space to do any type of shoot anyone wants to do and uh my versatility as a photographer is something i pride myself on so no matter what kind of work you need done, come to me, discuss it with me, and I'll let you know immediately if that's something that's within my realm. And for things that get done around here, I don't think there's anything that I can't provide for somebody uh, visually. And uh, I'm, I do video work and I do uh, uh, drone work as well. So that's another facet of my business that really doesn't get talked about so much. But um, uh, yeah, I've produced national level television commercials when I was in Florida. And uh, so I have a lot of knowledge in that area. So maybe we can uh, start making advertisements on TV look a little bit better, shoot it in 4K and, you know, ramp up the colors a little bit. And I always love seeing the old, you know it's an old commercial because it's still letterboxed on the yeah. side. The old like, four, to, four to three uh, yeah, aspect, four to three ratio, aspect yeah. ratio. And it's like, yeah. is Wink Martindale even alive still? He is. He is. He? Oh, wait a second. I think he may have passed away a year ago because his commercials are still on tv because oh, i've been watching tv he on may antenna. still be alive yeah. <laughs> i don't know yeah that's um, a google search for anybody listening the... to this is wink martindale still around yeah. well um one last question for you sure. anthony uh before we wrap up the uh, podcast here um instagram filters as a photographer yes no or indifference lose them lose them right now just get rid of the sepia tone uh, and all that stuff okay I, I it's fun for the kids if you're an adult in the dating world and you're using Instagram filters, stop it. 
please. <laughs> and I'm not in the dating world, but I see it. Um, you know, the, the internet and everyone seems to have to have an online persona. And I think that's one of the downfalls of, of social media that everyone thinks that they have to have this bigger than life thing about them, which is probably why my Instagram and my Facebook suffer a little bit. Cause I'm not a big selfie guy. Um, and I, I, you know, don't self-promotion for me sometimes is hard. And maybe that's the artist in me to where I, I, I feel a little pretentious in doing it. Um, like even this is, is just, well, I, I is thank you for, for me and, and talking about yourself yeah, and, and um, your, your career. Yeah. I have a lot of stories to tell and, but, and if I'm prompted, I will tell them, but I don't force them on people. I don't force, you know, what I've done in my life on people. I let them ask about it. If they ask about it, I'll tell them about it. Um, I've, I've been very fortunate. I've been able to do a lot of things that a lot of people in this place in a lot of places never get to do and just mingle with different people and celebrities and, and people who are known globally. Um, you learn real quickly. They're just people too. Yep. And you learn that some of them, on television, seem a lot brighter than they are in person. <laughs> and taller, as you mentioned. And taller, and taller, yeah. Um, Anthony DeJern, thank you so much for uh, coming in and Thanks for having being me. on the podcast. I encourage people to uh, subscribe to the podcast. Is that what you do on iTunes? I don't even know what you do on it. If iTunes is even I guess you subscribe. I guess you can look it up on iTunes yeah, and uh, yeah. subscribe to it. What do you do podcast on iTunes? So that way it'll show up... Uh, Oh, I'm going to have to go listen to this. I don't just know how idiot rip myself, rip myself to shreds and how stupid I sound. You sound awesome. <laughs> and uh, give give a like to the uh, Joe Show page on Facebook and the Definitely. Joe Show on Instagram. I don't use those filters. And uh, Joe Show page on Twitter as well. I think that's everything I'm on. Okay. So. Yeah, I am uh, anthonydegernphoto.com would be uh, my mm-hmm. photography. Uh, then, of course, uh, on um, Facebook, my photography page is adjphoto which is ADJ, photo is spelled F-O-T-O. Ooh. Dude, I just came from a Latin market, uh, Photografia. Okay. So it's spelled with F-O-T-O rather than P-H because uh, Spanish language doesn't have the P-H in it. Um, so I use that just to be a little bit different. Um, there's my little pretentiousness right there. <laughs> um, and then on I, on Twitter, I, I really don't have a Twitter account. I have I just kind of go off there and goof off. But, um, uh, but with uh, Instagram, it's... Uh, I think it's it's not ADJ photo. I can't remember what it is. At least I'm not the only one that doesn't remember. Oh, I'm going to have to look it up. This is so embarrassing. Up. Here I am promoting myself, and I don't even know what I'm saying. Um, it is Ant Photo. A N T F O T O. Ant Photo. Okay. So, Ant yep. Photo. Yep. On Instagram. Yep. Just Ant Photo. Oh, perfect. Yep. And so. You know, I, I, I don't use it to my advantage the way I should, but I'm going to start getting a little bit better with that. That's something that, that my uh, partner in life, uh, who moved up here from Miami, she's only lived in L.A. and Miami her entire life, so she's getting Iowa full tilt with the winners and everything, and she absolutely loves it here. What's her favorite, sweet corn or pork chops? Sweet corn. Well, you can't go wrong. Yeah, I've never been a big pork chop guy. Uh, it's give good. me some bacon. Oh, yeah. I'll eat bacon all day long. But pork chops, uh, she loves pork chops, but I'm more of a steak guy. Give me a good juicy steak. Well, um, thank you for listening to the What Do You Do podcast. Anthony, thank you for being hey, on thanks the for having What me. Do this You is, Do podcast. This has actually been pretty fun.